This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. One of the biggest challenges for nonprofit leaders today is how to balance becoming high tech while remaining high touch. In other words, how do we continue to innovate as nonprofits, but never lose the heart and soul of that highly relational experience for those we serve? I mean, I think many nonprofit leaders with good intentions have resisted implementing new technology because they're worried about losing that relational touch. I mean, nonprofits' specialty, right, is that highly relational life-on-life impact. But we're living in a world that if we as nonprofit organizations don't implement the right kind of technology and the right amount of technology, we will be left in the dust and become less and less effective over time. And this is especially true when it comes to fundraising. In fact, here to talk more about this, of how to utilize new technology, but in a way that truly enhances your ROI with fundraising, is Michael Goriaran. He is currently the president of Arjuna Solutions, and he brings a wealth of leadership experience from Microsoft and Xerox into the nonprofit sector. I think you're going to really enjoy what he has to say. Well, Michael, it's great to have you on the show today. Now, you currently serve as president of Arjuna Solutions, but you've had extensive leadership experience with a 30-plus year career at places like Microsoft and Xerox. And as I've gotten to know you a little bit before the show, uh, it's obvious that you've got great experience in both the for-profit and non-for-profit sector. And I think that's important. We'll talk about that a bit today. And maybe we could start out, though, by talking about the work you're doing at Arjuna Solutions. Arjuna specializes in applying behavioral economic modeling techniques through your patented AI capabilities. And the goal of this AI application is to improve fundraising at scale for nonprofits. And I I really want to talk about this because fundraising is so critical, as you know, for nonprofit organizations. And it does seem like with this ever-changing world we're living in, particularly when it comes to technology and the technology environment we're living in, fundraising techniques are also always changing. So talk more about your algorithm and how does it work? Background-wise, if I, if I think about what might be pertinent here is that I spent a lot of time at Microsoft in the area of working with algorithms, and I didn't think about doing this in nonprofit at the time. It just kind of one thing led to another, you know how that is. And so what happened was I was able to fortunately run into the founder of our organization, and his name is Adam Treiser. He's a professor of decision sciences at Johns Hopkins, and he had been working for almost a decade now, believe it or not. And he's only 38. So think about this impression. He had, he had this idea of what was going to be happening. And he said, if I looked at algorithms and I tried to apply them to different business problem solving, what would it be? And lo and behold, he said, I can solve pricing problems. And, and you wouldn't think about pricing being a nonprofit issue, right? These are not things you hear in the same sentence all the time. But what he did, which was really astute, is he blended together three types of algorithms, and he's able to very accurately measure donor sentiment. So what we do is we work in direct response fundraising. We're not working in the large gifts, you know, the 50,000 plus. This is more the mass mailing gift, which, as you know, is a $300 billion plus a year industry for fundraising. And he's been able to convert donor sentiment into the precise amount to ask of a donor 
at a specific moment in time, only in the context of that nonprofit. And so it's a very, very precise calculus. And it's not that your sentiment will be the same next month. So we do have moving targets in these direct mail or email solicitations pertinent to that donor at that moment. And that gives us 12% lift on average for most clients. Wow. Okay, so you argue that through this technology and your experience, you've found that every donor has this personal level of willingness to give, if you will. So how have you determined that? You've already kind of spoken that a little bit, but maybe you can go a little bit more deeper into how have you determined that? And then how can a nonprofit learn what that level is and then actually raise that level? Great question. The opportunity really is to use the different types of algorithms we've developed to be able to measure what we think might happen. So the first stage is let's make our best guess. Now, I will tell you that this best guess is informed with over 10 billion solicitations having run through our system in the last few years. So we're not making a wild guess. We're making a very specific type of technical guess. When I use the word guess, it's more you know, precise estimate. And then what we do is we run that through a series of persona groupings. We organize those donors into where we think they are by giving type, if you will. And then within their persona grouping, what point of elasticity they might have. And so that's the beginning, the first stage of, hey, what does this donor look like in terms of giving potential? It is not capacity. It is all desire. It's all sentiment. Okay? Because these gifts are below $2,500 or below 5000 in that range. And then we basically are producing the gift arrays, which can be used in an email. They can be used in a telemarketing situation. They can be used online and direct mail. And we do a ton of direct mail. I love direct mail. And then it goes out. And then lo and behold, 30 days later, 60 days later, all the responses come back in. That last part of the algorithm is called reinforcement machine learning. And from that, and we have two stages of algorithm use that's going on before it goes out, comes back in and we say, did Rob make a gift, not make a gift? If he did, was the potential, was the estimate correct or incorrect? And then I circulate it back out again. And this process of circulating and remailing the donor through whatever means allows us to perfect a model, which takes about nine to 12 months to optimize, where all of a sudden we know your behavior before you, we know how much to ask you. And then two tricks here, Rob, is one is retention. So the first thing is we don't want to alienate the donor. And then the second thing is optimized value and lifetime giving from them. I, okay. You said several good things in there. Direct mail. I want to talk about it a little bit because I've had people on the show and I've talked to other people outside this show that would say direct mail is dead. And you say you love direct mail. Talk about that. Why do you love it? And why does it work so well for you? That's right. Muerto, as they say, dead, right? He's all deceased. So we are, we are, we are seeing astounding levels of direct mail still in place. Now I'm not advocating let's do more. I'm saying let's do the optimal amount. And this is a secondary decision, which I think is really interesting, is once I know the level of sentiment you have and I translate that into a gift, and that gift starts to get validated through maybe an annual renewal of your membership, or maybe I convert you to a sustainer uh, and then you're giving monthly, or maybe you uh, respond to a special appeal or something of that nature that shows that now I really have some sophistication knowing when to ask, why to ask, how to ask, that kind of stuff. Then at that point, I, I, I look at that and say, okay, what, what do I do next to be able to get the highest level of giving I can over the course of time? And then that's one of those things where we start looking at a concept called net proceeds. And the net proceeds are, how do I make sure that as I am mailing, I'm not mailing you too frequently? Now, we all know, let's be honest here, boys and girls, right? We all know 
that we receive too much direct mail. And we know, and we're starting to get the poignant insight about what that does to us, whether it's environmentally or it's economically, because many of our clients are up more than 20% this year with the increase in postage, lack of envelopes, ironically or not, and then, and then the, and the paper increases. So when you start looking at those material changes in your budget, you have to really start questioning, how did I come up with this formula for the number of times I solicit? I saw one this morning go unnamed 26, okay, 26 times a year to a, a renewing donor to keep them active. I had another one last week before I was out on vacation 31 times a year. I had one wow. that was egregious that was literally 60 times a year, six zero. Okay. Oh, and, and my word. I, right. Yeah. So, so those are obviously not good numbers in my book. Now, Leo, I'm not a fundraising expert, but I know that with our secondary algorithms, we can determine not just the sentiment about whether or not you will give a certain amount, but whether or not you will give it all at this moment in time. And at a certain level of threshold, you should probably not send the mail piece out. It's not going to increase your giving. And if we can cut that down 10%, 15%, 20%, then all of a sudden you're in a situation where your costs start to get back in line with your budget. And then your direct mail is really optimized for the return on investment that it delivers, not just because you have some habit of sending out 26 or 31 or 60. Okay, this is good. Well, say a smaller nonprofit may be listening and they're like, okay, we have a limited marketing budget. What's your advice when it comes to digital marketing versus like direct mail? Do you feel like they need to split it? Do you do, if they have a limited budget, do they just go all into direct mail? Do they go all into digital marketing? What would you say to that, particularly when someone's really trying to watch their marketing budget? I think this has been the temptation of a lot of these smaller organizations is we just spent all this money on, say, a Salesforce implementation or something of that nature, some type of a platform for fundraising. And then the next thing is, wow, I can do more with less. So I'm really going to do a lot more. And then I'm also going to do it all digital. And I think that's a, a fatal flaw. That's the beginning of the fundraising starting to diminish because your excessive engagement actually causes people to disengage. And you know, as well as I do, unsubscribe is an easy click. And so you don't want to have that happen because that's the third rail of fundraising. So what you want to be able to do really is say, how do I manage my portfolio and look at the return on investment? When I send a piece of email, you're paying for the electricity, right? It's virtually zero. But what am I doing there? And are I really getting a response? Or do I do some type of good portfolio management or I look at my direct mail? Maybe I put a code in my direct mail so I know from an attribution standpoint if that direct mail piece influences the gift. When I log in, I look down at my solicitation because I'm going to make my gift. And then when I put in my code, the you know I got the piece of mail even though I'm contributing online. And I think it's good to influence everybody through all channels of communication whether it's direct mail, it's email, it's online, or it's through social media, which I get a ton of these now. And if you can balance that effectively, it's the coordination of them and the rationalization of the number of times you use them, which we can do electronically or in print, that allows you to really optimize the donor experience. That's the thing, the donor experience. And then the solicitations will hopefully give you the optimal ROI. Very, very helpful. I like that approach, actually. And now let's lean into digital a little bit and, and to smart tech. In fact, you may have heard of Beth Cantor and Allison Fine. They're authors. They've got a new book out, and I've had them on my show recently. And we talked about smart tech and other advanced digital technologies. And I know that's a lot of your background. And one of the things we talked about, it was really fascinating. They were arguing that if we're not careful, and this is across the board, but we were talking about nonprofit leaders, but if we're not careful, 
smart tech is so smart that they can start making decisions for people rather than being used by people. And so they talked about how tech is so smart now and so advanced that if they begin, you know, this tech that you've maybe built into your software program or your Salesforce or whatever marketing program you have, the tech can kind of start making decisions for you rather than you, again, utilizing the technology to really maximize your effectiveness, like you're saying, so you have a high ROI. Talk about that. What would you say from your experience? Again, this is in the non-for-profit and the for-profit sector. When does tech become less useful because maybe you're not really managing it well? Could you talk to that? I think to me, it gets back to managing the ROI. And there's two ways of measuring ROI. It's do you have the same number of donors participating? And then are they providing gifts at a a reasonably predictable level? But I I don't think it's a situation of just simply abdicating and then it's abusing you. I think it's picking the technology that has all the right aspects. And what I mean by that is not that it uh, just financially performs like I was alluding to alone, but that it has the right security architecture, that it has the right privacy architecture that uh, bias has been removed from the solicitation process so you don't get a homogeneous group that you grind into the ground, but that you understand the dimensionality of your donors. And when new donors come in through some type of an acquisition process, whether that's an event or direct mail, whatever the program is that brings you new donors, that you see where those donors fit into the circumstances of your personas of donors. And you don't want to be in a situation where you are using something that does not recognize them or you're using something that has bias because you see their address or you see their surname. And as a result of that, you start making this confirmation bias where you, you assume something about them that is completely wrong, which you know can happen in life. So if you, for a solution like ours, we don't use PII. We're only observing behavior and modeling on behavior. And because we don't use PII, it inherently improves your security and your privacy. Because then all you're doing is you're moving around encrypted digital files that just have columns of donation amounts and columns of how much was made as a donation, but you never know who the donor is. So I think between the security, the privacy, removing bias, making sure the economics and ROI and the KPIs, the key performance indicators that would be associated with campaigns being responded to properly, a decent response rate, say 5.5% or above, something like that those types of uh, practices will optimize your performance. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Arts Midwest. They have launched a new podcast called Filling the Well. The Filling the Well podcast has been created to nourish, provoke, and inspire. Hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power, avoid burnout, build community, share resources, and advocate for support. You can visit artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Again, that's artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. 
And this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. That's interesting. It's a great segue into this next question about automation and nonprofits. You kind of were speaking to that a little bit. How is the increase in automation either helping or hurting nonprofits, specifically when it comes to fundraising? And how prevalent have you found this to be a trend for nonprofit organizations in terms of using automation? And I was alluding to this a little earlier, and I think we're all in the same habit all the time, is once you get a widget, well, I'm going to use the widget, and then I don't have to do that much work. And so I'm going to let the widget work, and I'm going to go work on more strategic things, right? And I think what happens is, and it's important to do that, but what happens if you think about marketing automation like that, and you just let it drive you know, its own rhythm, or you let it simply allow you to solicit many more times through many different types of campaigns, you end up overcomplicating the donor relationship, and you end up over-soliciting, which we talked about earlier, that unsubscribe option. So what you want to be able to do is uh, use a balanced portfolio to solicit appropriately in terms of the number of uh, direct mail pieces and ensure that you're in a situation where, as you are thinking about using things, it's not about excessively using them, but using them in a balanced manner that just simply is deriving the most money, the most net proceeds, if you will, in terms of the amount you're spending to be able to get the donors to be retained to make a gift. And the cost of doing that uh, on a regular basis you know, and the revenue associated with it. So if you can get that kind of blend together, then you're going to see, am I optimizing or sub-optimizing as I look at my revenue divided by my costs? I like that approach. And I can tell that you really have tried to have a balanced approach with a lot of things. And one of the things I also want to get your take on, because you have had so much experience in the tech background, is this balance in the nonprofit world. And I think maybe more so in the nonprofit world than, say, the for-profit world, where it comes to this human touch. I think nonprofits are really, one of their hallmarks is this human touch. And you never want to lose that human touch. In fact, I think some nonprofit leaders and organizations have maybe held on too long to not embrace new technology because they're afraid of losing this human in touch, right? So of all these tools and new advancements in, in technology, how do nonprofits make the most of this new technology, but at the same time, never lose that human touch that makes them special? And, th- and this is a little bit of a, an odd way of saying this, Rob, but you want a personalization at scale. You want intimacy at scale, which is kind of an oxymoron. The surrogate for that was events, but events have been diminished. And, and I think people are going to try to go, we were talking about this today, where we think events are going to come back online. Well, no kidding, that's already happening, right? Yes. The question is, what does it look like and how many people and how do you protect people? You know, I was on travel last week, we were wearing masks in audience. That was the requirement of the country we were in. And I, so I think that the events are going to come back online, but then you're in a situation where, you know, once you're looking at that, you know, what else can you do to communicate what I mentioned earlier, personalization, at scale or intimacy, you know something about the donor. And we think it's a couple of things. One is you have to have, we have to have a partner that is a great marketing agency. We are not a marketing agency. We just are giving you the economic model of each donor and predicting the amount to ask by the type of campaign. But if I look at the marketing agencies, they have to have a great appeal where they understand the impact of the charter and the value of advancing the charter of the nonprofit they are supporting. You say, well, no kidding. Well, I've seen a lot of work and there's a lot of variation in the nature of the appeal. And the appeal has to be germane to the demographics of the donor, the recipient. So when you do that really well, it resonates in a way that is different than just some generic campaign. Like you and I would have a different opinion 
or a different appeal necessarily from maybe an academic institution that we didn't attend versus when we did attend. And uh, the solicitation would be different in that kind of nonprofit scenario. So I think that the, the idea of making sure that the uh, nature of the appeal is correct and then the images are correct, it starts to connect with the donor. It gives you that personalization scale. They know me, right? My demographic is different than yours. And so at least by age, I think we're up, Rob, here. So maybe my images and appeal is different, you know? And then the second, the second thing is now when I ask the amount, do I alienate? So we think we're, we're not the, I always use this corny analogy. We're not the carrot cake because I love carrot cake, right? We're not the carrot cake. We're that beautiful cream cheese icing that goes on the carrot cake. And we make it just a little bit sweeter because we connect with you. We go, oh, that's so good. They're asking me just the right amount of money. I don't ask you for 10,000. I ask you for 250 or I ask you for 50 because I know your connection from a sentiment standpoint with this nonprofit for this type of appeal at this time. And then they go, wow, I love the way that they're doing the work they do. That's the advancement of the mission. And I love the fulfillment of that mission. I'm passionate about that. And then boom, look at the amount. I could definitely pay that amount. And I want to do it as a sustainer, right? So we give that kind of finishing, if you will, of the meal that's being served in that campaign. And then you just meet people where they are. And that's personalization at scale that you're not going to have the event necessarily, but you're going to communicate. You understand who they are and how much they want to donate. I really like that. It seems like you're balancing this high touch on the one hand, but also using high tech and all the wonderful advancements in technology, but using those both and very wisely to maximize your ROI again. Love that. Again, you've had a lot of experience. As we look at fundraising on a broad scale and particularly now in the late, uh, the last two years, COVID definitely has impacted a lot of the way people are fundraising and whether or not people are going to continue to give to certain nonprofits. Do you feel like as you've looked at this trend line, say now, not just the last two years, but now we're talking like say in the last 10, 20 years, do you feel like fundraising is changing so much that the old ways, if you will, of fundraising are becoming obsolete in light of these new technology tools and perhaps what we've gone through the last two years? What would you say to that? So it's interesting because we all have to have good infrastructure and we all have to have data that is better organized than it was, you know, and, and I, be, I ran a nonprofit as chairman of the board of the uh, Oregon Council for Hispanic Advancement. So I've seen what these donor records look like. Good intentions, not always the best execution in terms of the systems we had, the ability to capture all the information consistently, but you have to keep working at that. And then the last 10 years have seen substantial advance, advances in terms of better systems, better infrastructure, better capabilities, better marketing campaigns, more automation, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to be in a situation where you say, is that the only way to do it? And, and, or do I end up in, or do I end up uh, becoming a drone basically? And I just doing it that way. And, and I think that the, the opportunity really is to make sure that as using those systems, that you don't get confused about donor influence versus donor attribution. And so you don't want to walk away from the meet and greet events. Those are going to be important, like I alluded to a moment ago. But then your direct mail can have a better uh, sentiment to it in terms of the things I was describing. But you want to be able to balance across them such that as you start to think about the donor relationship, that you don't look at it so myopically. And, and without you know casting aspersions, as they say, I think that we are too concerned in many of the larger organizations about who actually influenced the donor and who got and secured the donation from the donor. And I think that there needs to be more of a focus more broadly on how do we think about collectively across the channels influencing and then ensuring that when I know Rob is my donor targeted wise, that I'm seeing because I can tell if you open the email or I can tell if I hit him correctly 
on one of the uh, online capabilities when you say what you come to my nonprofit and you use my services. Like if I a heart association, for instance, and I have some services or I have the Alzheimer's Association and some services. So you log in and I'm engaging you in email and I can see you logging in from the email. I know that that signal is working for you, right? If I send a direct mail piece with a code on it and you respond with that code, it registers you that I know that works. I think collectively the teams have to understand that we're all influencing and we're all trying to get Rob to donate and let's be reasonable with each other so we don't miss the forest for the trees. We want to all influence Rob and then figure out which is the right combination for him and get the optimal gift. And that, that's where I think there's some big opportunity for us. It's so fascinating. And in, in your research, have you found, are there pretty distinct, we'll say generational differences when you get this feedback on the data that you try and whether it be, you know, mail or digital, are there distinctions or is it more regional differences? Or what have you found in terms of that kind of feedback in terms of, yeah, who responds to which? You know, this is the beautiful thing about we're, what we do on our side anyways, because I'm not in a marketing campaign world. So I'm not well suited to answer necessarily that question from a marketing campaign standpoint or which channel you know might be appealed to each uh, regional or, or age group. But I think for us, we're doing behavioral economics modeling. So we can see where the intensity of the sentiment is and when that occurs and know when to be able to go after that individual donor. And I think as a result of that, with the right price point, we can optimize the giving. We have to uh, just look at the behavior that's exhibited and then try to take the people or, or demographics out of the mix and see if we can influence the behavior we're looking for. There's a person named Richard Thaler. We love his book called Nudge. We're trying to move the donor to the optimal level of giving. We're not trying to extract a one-time large gift or use AI in an inappropriate way. We're trying to help the donor see themselves in the light that we see them as asking the right gift amount. And that is that 12% improvement in giving I was talking about. And that's just in the first year. It could be over the course of time. It's much larger. Now, very interesting. Well, you've had a lot of leadership experience. And one of the things I do believe in quite a bit, if leaders are going to continue to grow and be successful in moving their either business or nonprofit, you know, through all the challenges that they face and moving into the future, oftentimes we as leaders need to be willing to change our styles or methods of leadership. So number one, I would say, do you agree with that? And if so, or if not, what are the most important leadership methods that nonprofit leaders should implement, particularly in light of our changing world because of all the changes in technology? The change is inevitable, right? I love change personally. I like riding the front edge of that wave. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing artificial intelligence uh, uh, at this stage of my career. I just think it's fascinating. But I think that the thing that has changed the most is that we need leaders in every field that are very technically capable. And so it isn't like I can just, I'm going to hire my tech person, right? And that's it. And I abdicate to them. And then I have to have them in every call so they can decipher what's being said. Those days in, in my book are long gone. You have to be social media fluent. You have to be AI fluent, which doesn't mean you need to be an AI expert, but you need to understand how it works and its dependencies and pitfalls. And I think as a result of that, you know, these are the newer school things. And then you have to know the direct response and event stuff and pressing the flesh being out there, right? And those are the old school things in a typical fundraising world. Then the new skill as the leader that is a challenge is portfolio management. And we've done some projects with leaders around this area. And I'm not saying this is easy in the least. I'm not saying that anybody should do this and everybody should do this. And it's one of those things where you have to put the processes in place to make sure that you understand for your organization, your donors, how you allocate resources appropriately. And then, like I alluded to a moment ago, how do you 
uh, make sure that credit for the influence and credit for the donation are equitably balanced across your organization. Because we run into this all the time where we'll say, well, here's how you can benefit here. And then we, and we say here and here and here and look at the different channels. And then it's like, well, you have to go talk to somebody else. That's not my organization. And we're dealing at relatively high levels in the organization, you know, up to the chief development officer. And the culture has to change around equitable portfolio management, equitable credit for the person's contributions of both the influence and the collection side. And that's, that's not easy. So that's the new frontier. Now, well said. Well, again, I think my listeners are going to want to learn a little bit more about you and your organization. So tell us, how can they find out more about you, first of all, and then also your organization that you lead? Well, we've been doing this for several years now. It's not a new business in the sense we've been in business now for over eight years, almost a decade now. Uh, four of those were in research and development. If you come to Arjuna Solutions, A-R-J-U-N-A, ArjunaSolutions.com, there are some case studies out there, both in video and in written format that you can certainly take advantage of in terms of seeing how people have done things and what kind of gains they've realized. I'm personally happy to meet with anybody from your podcast or some member of my organization can to brief you also or your organization or your um, podcast listeners on what we do and how we do it. We try to keep this, you mentioned something earlier, we try to keep this really simple. It's not abdicating to technology, but you can outsource some things. And we deliver this as a simple service. We don't actually give any technology to anybody. So somebody sends us, okay, here's the list of the of the donor numbers because we don't need to have PII. So it's donor one, two, three, four, five. And uh, we would like to solicit them in a renewal campaign with this kind of cadence. And then we start calculating those gift array values. And we're just shipping them back to gift array values or to their marketing agency. So we try to keep that very simple. And then the proof is in the pudding. If we are doing better financially than you were doing with your existing methods, then it proves economically that it makes sense to do it. And we just keep doing that and doing that. And it's just simply a better model than what you were using. It's not really abdicating anything except that, oh, I'm choosing something that's a little more effective from a calculation standpoint. And that's as simple as we are to work with. And we'd love to have the opportunity to brief people on these experiences. Oh, well, it's been a fascinating conversation, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for what you're bringing to the nonprofit sector. And thanks for all you're offering to nonprofit leaders like the listeners that I have. So thanks for being on the show today. All right. Thanks, Rob. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.